Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. So you have this king who in other stories has power over life and death, he can create floods. He's engaged in this yard sale with an ape that breaks all his stuff. <laughs> this program features the work of 2017 writer Brandon Young. He spoke with curator Jordan Amani Keith about his work. One of the things that struck me immediately when I was reading about your project description that stood out was your subject and, and talking about hoarding behavior. I would like to know a little bit more why that's important to you, what the title of your work is, and, and how that came to be something that you recognized might have a larger contextual value. So I think that quite a few people talk about uh, the role of garbage in our lives and the role of like kind of the waste that we produce and what we do with it and how we, um, you know, spend so much time just getting new stuff that we don't necessarily need. And so I feel like that ground has been covered pretty well. For me, what makes it personal is that although my family doesn't really have kind of pathological hoarding behavior or anything that they've been diagnosed with, um, we hold on to a lot of stuff particularly myself, because we don't have a kind of family home or like a family garage that we can put all our things in. I've carried around a lot of things with me um, through my life. So I have like childhood drawings and things uh, from when my father passed away, things that he owned. And so I've carried around like several carloads of stuff um, every time that I've moved, which has been about once a year for the past six or seven years. And so I have a lot of stuff with me that has a lot of personal value. So what was compelling to me and the kind of angle that I wanted to take on it came because I read this book called Stuff, Compulsive Hoarding, and the Meaning of Things by Gail Steckity and Randy Frost. And one of the things that they talked about in this book, which is a bunch of case studies of hoarders, people who have been diagnosed with hoarding behavior, um, is this feeling that objects have so much value to them that they can't throw them away. And so that's the angle that I wanted to tackle, um, talking about not necessarily uh, pathological hoarding behavior, but just what kinds of things people are not able to throw away, what prevents people from getting rid of things in their lives? When you speak about hoarding, for me, I think also the emotional hoarding. Is the emotional part of that something that you've worked through in your writing? And what's the title of your work? I don't quite have a working title for the project yet. I know that I want to use the word salvage in there somewhere. Um, salvage, I think, carries kind of connotations of uh, ships, you know, connotations of finding treasure and bringing them back. Uh, and I think that that aspect of it is something that I explore a little bit in what I've written so far. I'm talking about buried treasure, talking about hoarding in its kind of original uh, definition, which was a, a pile of treasure. What does a diagnosis of hoarding look like? Um, one way that I've heard it described is you have this term pack rat, and so you, you might have like your garage just full of stuff, like newspapers, things like that. But it's also all in one part of your house. And you have like a control over like where all these things go, even if it's a lot of stuff. Whereas a hoarder has so many things that they block off mobility around their house. They maybe can't use the restroom or they can't use their kitchen, things like that, because there's so many things that it blocks their way. 
and it gets in the way of their lives. And so sometimes people that have like mobility issues, people that are older, they might be more at risk for this. In the context of what I feel like is a moral poison happening now, a name we shall not speak, how do you see this work impacting people's consciousness? I think that people don't need to necessarily be seeking a moral lesson in order to find one just by looking at the world around them. When you are talking about the name we uh, must not speak and the, the names that circulate around him, um, I think that a lot of the, the anxiety and a lot of the fear that gives a person like that so much power is anxiety around stuff, anxiety around you know not having enough stuff, not having uh, more stuff in the future, about people taking your stuff away. And I think that we're at a moment, and really this moment is, is always happening, where we have to decide what is important to us and what we value. Um, and I think that a lot of our metrics for what we value, a lot of the way that we measure that is around our stuff and not necessarily around the happiness of the people around us or our security or our, uh, our joy, our happiness. And that's what we have to decide is how to measure that and how to look at what we care about. Is there a necessity to warding that provides a salvation from something, you know, um, as a response to trauma or long-term stress? Um, I have a friend who told me that hoarding happens um, when you grow up in an insecure way, and it's a way to hold on to potential. So one way of looking at hoarding that the people in this book that I read stuff is a problem of not letting go of that potential. So you hold on to a coupon for years and years because you might use it one day, or you hold on to you know a, a pen or something like that. And so it all, it all piles up over time. And so uh, some people you know, who would be diagnosed as hoarders, they don't see hoarding as a problem because they, they just think that they're very resourceful. They think that they you know, see value in all these things, even if it kind of gets in the way of their health or something like that. So I don't think that hoarding is necessarily always a bad thing. I think that it comes out of a, a real uh, you know, human desire to be useful and to find use in things and to make order in their world. And I think that the pathology of it, you know, the problems that come from it, happen because you're not able to, uh, to choose you know, what, is, what is important. Or maybe you choose too much. Tell me about your, your work as a writer. How did you begin writing? And um, what pushes you to pick a subject and pursue it? What I really uh, value is kind of a conversational tone uh, being very approachable, which is what really appealed to me about doing slam poetry when I was in college and also a few years after, uh, was that there was such an engagement with the audience. And in the Bay Area, especially where I was coming from, there was such a powerful community and so much response from the people that you were, you were uh, talking to. And so there was really a lot of pressure on you to be very approachable, to say something that was very, that connected with them. You know, you didn't really have time uh, for them to really let something that you said gestate and really like work through like deeper levels of meaning. You just had to like really hit them, which I think some people, um, and, and fair, very fairly, they, they have concerns about. Um, they think that maybe you're going for like really shallow or maybe like uh, two surface level observations in slam poetry. Um, but I really appreciate that, especially uh, being a pretty shy kid 
and especially having a lot of problems communicating when I was younger, that I could be in a space where I could say something and really feel like I was being heard. I think that that style of being very conversational and being very clear and not necessarily so metaphorical and not necessarily so uh, abstract really pushes me to write, that I can see things around me and, and communicate them well to someone else. Because Jackstraw offers so much audio support and because that's kind of the resources that uh, you get that are a little different from other writing programs, I think I'm going in a kind of a different direction from what I've written so far. So my method um, in the past has been, uh, I've been working a lot in slam poetry mostly. And with slam poetry, you're able to uh, create like a performance of a moment. You're able to be on stage for a certain, like a certain amount of time. You can improvise if you want. And so it's not necessarily um, devoted to something that will last a long time, which I think is what's really fun about the medium. You can create something very spontaneous and it's different every time. And so um, I'm kind of exploring something a little different with this project where I try to create more work for the page. I try to uh, explore more nonfiction and things that are less coming out of my own head. And I think that's what's really fun about this project is that rather than creating, um, I wouldn't say disposable, but definitely uh, more spontaneous work like I've done in the past, I'm going to try to create something that, that sticks with people more, that draws from, uh, from more work and more mortal work outside of myself. What moment do you hope will be that is captured in what you, you give the Jack Straw audience in that anthology? What, what moment do you hope will actually stay? Even though I'm starting from this topic of hoarding, from this kind of behavior pattern that's often pathologized and seen as a disease, what I want to do is make people think about the things that they have and the things that they hold as valuable. And if I can make people think about that in a way that's not in the context of a disease, but rather in the context of their personal values, their personal beliefs, and their personal loves, and show them that that feeling of being attached to an object has a history to it, it has you know art that comes out of it, it has science around it. If I can create that moment for them, then I think that this project will have been a success. Now we'll hear a selection from Brandon's live reading. Across the street from South Seattle Community College in Georgetown is a rather nondescript gray building with no windows. It looks like some kind of utility building, and that's what it is. When it began in the 1960s, it was a telephone switching center which takes telephone calls and routes them to their destination, exactly as human operators, primarily women, used to do from the second half of the 19th century until the middle of the 20th. In a way, the building still does that, but instead of routing telephone calls across hundreds of miles, telephone calls are routed over about 200 feet. Sarah Autumn is a volunteer at the Connections Museum, formerly the Herbert H. Warwick Jr. Museum of Communications, formerly the Vintage Telephone Equipment Museum, formerly the Duwamish Central Office for Pacific Northwest Bell. The building is now owned by CenturyLink and still goes by that name. Like telephones themselves, the museum has gone through many rebrands, and the newest name, like a new phone, is less ornate than its predecessors. Now we just changed the name to Connections. 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 Snappy. Since she began, it is snappy. Since she began, 
Uh, Sarah's been involved in a device that's been central to the museum since its founding in the mid-80s. For the last 30 years, the museum has displayed an automatic switching system, which engineers called the panel. Its original name, obviously named by engineers, was the Power Driven Machine Switching System. So, <laughs> panel caught on fairly quickly. It's the centerpiece of the museum and the only one in the world, so it deserves some kind of special attribution. I'm going to call it the Panel, capitalized. You can hear it. The reason it got the name Panel is because of these large, flat panels here. They weren't really that creative with the name. <laughs> Though engineers and scientists have had fun naming their work, there's a trilobite called Han Solo, there's the submarine named by the internet Bodie McBoatface, their creativity is just as apparent in solutions to technical problems. The museum is a record of how people connect with each other over long distances and the evolution of the solutions to that problem over the last century. The panel is a fundamental part of that history, and were it not for the museum, it might be in a landfill. In 1984, the Bell system, which had a monopoly on US telephone systems, was broken up. Part of this agreement was to make new telephone systems compatible with modern features such as long distance calling and also to create physical space for competitors. This led to a mass disposal of technology such as the panel, which wasn't capable of some of the features the agreement required. However, the panel was salvaged by a group of telecom employees including Herbert Warwick Jr., who in the 50s and 60s worked on the panel in its original location. After enlarging the door of the museum to fit the panel's 11-foot, 6-inch racks and arranging them within the building, the founders had a problem. In order to move these racks, the wires that had connected them had been cleanly severed. To make the panel functional again, the museum had to connect bundles of hundreds of multicolored wires, one wire at a time. A large part of Sarah's work at the museum involves restoring the panel's functionality. In her pursuit of this, she has a set of diagrams of the panel's circuitry and architecture. In addition, she has a library of BSPs, or Bell System Practices, books of highly detailed descriptions of how everything in the Bell System, including the panel, should function. It's far from easy. The diagrams are not a complete set, and some are almost 100 years old. Different types of technology have to interface with each other to make the demonstrations possible. Is there enough uh, information that you have to be able to restore all of this, or is it some of it kind of like improvised? Some of it's improvised. Uh -huh. Largely, I'd say about 90, 85, 90% of it we have. Okay. There are specific projects I've engaged in where we didn't actually have the documentation. Mm -hmm. We had documentation for a different piece of equipment in a different, from a different time period, and I had to not make assumptions, but I had to sort of connect the dots and figure out what they meant. Sometimes the success of the projects comes down to fate. Sarah relays, pun intended, a story from last year in which another telecommunications enthusiast told her about a collector in Connecticut. I practice that line a lot. His collection <laughs> included a set of parts required to restore uh, the museum's number one crossbar, a more sophisticated version of the panel. Sarah and another volunteer went to Connecticut to pick up the parts and drive them back. We were, I, was, I was beyond shocked because, again, this, cross, this number one crossbar is the only one left in the world, just like the panel. And to, the thought that someone would have these two very specific pieces of equipment that it, it, it used to talk to the panel, to communicate with it, was just completely unbelievable. Nettie.
Yeah, it's it's like Indiana Jones, Ark of the Covenant, Holy Grail type stuff, you know? It's beautiful to see someone love what they do. The museum arose from the work of several enthusiasts seeing the value of things that would otherwise be thrown away. And there's more out there. As telephone technology changes, more equipment will end up at the dump, and the museum aims to preserve as much as it can. As communications become increasingly wireless, the museum remains a place to take old technologies and experience them like new ones by plugging them in and seeing them work. And you don't have to see them. You can hear them. So this project involves a lot of talking to people and that uh, I had to learn like some habits that I had myself when I was talking to people that might make not like a great audio clip like where I just like say mm-hmm yeah of course and it kind of cuts in the middle of people's uh, <laughs> middle of people's conversations. So I decided to kind of step back from talking to people and I also you know it was the winter in Seattle I didn't want to go outside and I just wanted to go on the internet and explore some things. So today I'm going to talk about worms but like why? like worms with a Y, like W-Y-R-M-S. When worm is spelled with a Y, it refers to a European dragon, which is often shown nowadays guarding a big pile of treasure. This is called a hoard. Uh, worms don't always hoard in mythology. In the story of St. George, the dragon doesn't have any treasure. He's just kind of a jerk. <laughs> the tradition of dragons guarding treasure mostly comes from two stories, uh, Beowulf and the Volsunga saga. In Beowulf, the treasure is seen after the dragon. The dragon gets a gold cup stolen and comes out to wreck everything, and Beowulf, the king, eventually dies in the battle after tracking down the dragon's lair. This is the earliest example of a fire-breathing, treasure-guarding dragon in literature, but the concept actually precedes the poem by several centuries in oral tradition, the story behind the Volsunga saga. In the Volsunga saga and its adaptations, the dragon gets a name, Fafnir. He used to be a dwarf, but there was just a ton of magic. There was like another dwarf who could turn into an otter. There was some Norse gods and a magic waterfall. And through this, Fafnir acquired a treasure. In particular, he guards a magic ring that curses its owners, which sounds a lot like a super influential fantasy story that we're not going to talk about. <laughs> Later, Fafnir is attacked by his brother's foster son, who came to slay. And Fafnir is stabbed in the heart when he walks over a crevice where the warrior is hiding. Before the dragon dies, he warns the warrior Sigurd that the treasure is cursed and that all who possess the treasure are fated to die. Sigurd responds that all men die anyway, and the curse is worth it to be rich until then. It's a very uh, Norse mythology kind of moral. So what does the treasure mean? What do these true stories say about the consequences of getting a big pile of stuff? In Beowulf, the treasure isn't cursed, but in order to acquire it, the king sacrifices his life and also the peace of the kingdom, since his death leads to political instability. Fafnir becomes physically twisted by his own greed. Whether the change is internal or external, gathering wealth leads to the formation of an element that's morally and literally poisonous. But not always. What if the dragon wasn't European? What if some of the horde was junk? Journey to the West is a 16th century novel. Like the Volsunga saga, it draws from much older folklore. In Journey to the West, Aoguang is a Chinese dragon, so he has some kind of power over water. 
What I like about Journey to the West is how uh, gods and fantasy creatures and farm animals, they're all part of this divine bureaucracy. Everyone has a job and responsibilities. They're very serious. It makes it so much fun when the protagonist, the impulsive and perpetually unemployed monkey king, just goes through and wrecks everything. <laughs> So we're looking at Ao Guang. He's the Dragon King of the East Sea. He has a vast collection of treasures. And when the Monkey King comes to extort the Dragon King for weapons, Ao Guang tries to pass off his useless junk to the invader. So you have this king who in other stories has power over life and death. He can create floods. He's engaged in this yard sale with an ape that breaks all his stuff. <laughs> and the Monkey King eventually takes something that's not even offered to him. It's this pillar, the Rui Jin Bang, that stabilizes the sea. This causes a storm that wrecks the Dragon King's house. So in Journey to the West, which I say is largely a story about class differences, this material wealth is a distraction from the valuable things, the institutions that hold the kingdom together. And while we're on the subject of junk and the creatures living in it, especially given that it's uh, the day after uh, the 4th of May, you know, Star Wars Day, I wanted to change the subject to something a little more modern. You might remember in Star Wars when Luke and Leia and Han and Chewie are stuck in the dump with the monster that tries to drown them <laughs> before they have to shut down all the garbage mashers on the detention level. That's called a Dianoga. It's basically a garbage-eating octopus with a periscope eye. Like a lot of animals, it's only aggressive when threatened, and people falling into its habitat and firing off blasters definitely qualify. <laughs> but while wriggling monsters that are big enough to attack people in the sewers are probably fictional, uh, wriggling monsters in the sewer are not. In 2009, a YouTube video circulated that appeared to show some kind of tumor growing in a sewer in North Carolina. This was one of the first viral videos, and it became known as the Carolina Poop Monster. <laughs> Later, scientists and city officials confirmed that the video showed a colony of tube effects worms. They feed on sediment, and they live in lakes and rivers and sometimes sewers. The colony was moving simultaneously in response to the camera operator's light, which made it look like a muscle. Once again, science ruined everything, and what was called the Carolina poop monster turned out to be worms living in garbage, uh, much removed from the worms living in garbage of myth and legend. <laughs> Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2017 curator of this program is Jordan Amani Keith. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther. Recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keene. And executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Steve Griggs Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase, and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>